Well, good morning. It's always a, a blessing to be with you. Uh, this morning we are continuing as a church our study of God's words to us in the Ten Commandments. We spent the last several weeks listening to uh, each of the various commands and, and kind of trying our best to understand those at a deeper level. Uh, to question ourselves of, of how well are we actually living uh, not just as individuals, but as a community, the kind of life that God envisions for us, the kind of God, life that God hopes for us is possible. Uh, we have now reached the seventh commandment. We're kind of in that place in the Ten Commandments where rather than describing positively all of the options that are available to us when it comes to living a blessed and good life, God is warning us. He, he's giving us stop signs of you're headed in the wrong direction. If this is what your life consists of, uh, it is not a good life in the way that God wants us to have a good life. So this morning, in Exodus 20:14, we read these words. You shall not commit adultery. I think earlier, Keith said, we're so glad you're here with us this morning as Jared continues this. We're excited to hear as he talks about we shouldn't be people who commit adultery. I thought, yeah, that sounds super exciting. <laughs> and, you know, it's a self-evident statement, right? You shall not commit adultery. So don't do it. We're going to have some shepherds and their wives out. <laughs> oh. I've really wanted to actually do that this week. I've been thinking about how do I, how do I talk the least amount of time about something that, if we're honest, just makes us uncomfortable to talk about, and especially to talk about in a group of people, and especially to talk about at church. I uh, was at my grandfather's uh, farm, and he had some animals, and I was from the city, and I wasn't used to being around animals, and while I was there, the animals started getting friendly the way animals can, and I'm in fourth grade, and I state out loud my observation to my grandfather about the animals, and he just tells me what I'm witnessing, and nobody has told me about this before. So I go back into the house, and I start sharing with my mother what her father has just told me. She runs out of the room. My father comes into the room, looking like it's the last place he wants to be. And he starts to try to, to find out what it is I'm thinking. And he says, you know what? I need a little time to prepare for this. We'll talk about this later. So then we have, uh, I'm in school and there's this field trip we're going on the next week to Alcatraz. I'm supposed to ride on the bus. My dad decides I'm not going to ride on the bus. He's going to drive me to Alcatraz. I don't know if there was symbolism in any of this for him, but we're, we're going to go to a prison together and on the way, we're going to talk about uh, the birds and the bees. Uh, I, I got out of that Toyota pickup, and I didn't want to be anywhere near my father. Right? He tried his best. We all try our best. And I'm preaching in a room right now to people from first grade and up. I don't want to create an Alcatraz moment for your family. So it's been a really difficult week because you can't talk about adultery without talking 
about sex. And God is not afraid to talk about sex in church, but I am. I am. So I thought, well, there's got to be other ways to talk about it where you don't have to keep saying that word over and over and over again. So I, I opened up a, a bunch of translations and, and went to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, and thought there's got to be different ways to, to translate this. So in the NIV, uh, you've got Adam to his wife. Um, in the NIRV, which is the reader's version, it says Adam loved his wife Eve and, uh, with her. Uh, you go to the next translation, and the, the new century version, Adam had relations with his wife Eve. Go to the next. Okay, this is the modern English version. Adam had relations with his wife Eve. That was someone who read the NCV and thought, no, I'd like to back that off a little. Uh, this next one is the mommy and daddy version. There's nothing to see here. Move along. There wasn't a baby, now there's a baby. That's it. Contemporary English version in case anybody wants to download it. Okay. <clears throat> Which sent me to the good old King James. It says, and Adam knew Eve his wife. This is what we mean when we say you know someone in the biblical sense. And there are many, many other, not just old translations, but modern translations that choose to come back to this verb of knowing. Right? The, the common English Bible, which is the translation I use most often when I'm preaching, adds the word intimately, to, to know intimately. Right? And there's a reason that these translations come back to this idea. Uh, because... In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, uh, to know means to be physically intimate. And, and that phrase is one that I chose on purpose. One, because I can say it more often than a sermon and we're all going to be okay. Uh, the other is that it combines a couple of realities about us that we tend to separate. Okay, in, in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, you don't have a body, you are one. And you don't have a soul, you are one. Okay, now we tend to separate all that out and act like that, that we can keep those things separate. But everybody in this room understands that there are spiritual aspects to our physical bodies. Right? That there's no clean separation. And God doesn't want there to be a separation. Because if you push a separation too far between your body and your soul, sometimes we even talk about a spirit, which is difficult to figure out how your spirit's different from your soul, right? So we'll just, we'll just keep it as body and soul. If you go to a doctor and a doctor says there's a mass, that's a spiritual crisis, right? It's, it's only happening at some level, a molecular level, I suppose, in your body, but it's not only happening in your body. It's happening to you, right? It's happening inside of you. And we have found that through research, but not just through research, through experience, that how you're feeling emotionally and spiritually directly impacts your physical health, right? So there's, there's no way to keep these things separate. And so this idea of 
physical intimacy, I hope, connects this idea that we're doing something with our bodies that we hope will help us get to know someone else in not just a physical way, obviously in a physical way, but also in a deeply spiritual way, in an emotional way. And we know this is true. We know it deep down inside of who we are. Okay, and so I want us to, to use this phrase this morning, and I want us to think about what it means. Right? Physical intimacy is intended to be pleasurable. But it's not all about pleasure. When my dad was first learning to preach, for some reason, somebody invited him to come speak at a, at a special uh, event where they were talking about marriage and, and physical intimacy and so he decided to preach out of Genesis, and he came up with what he thought was this really great refrain that he was going to repeat over and over and over in his sermon. And it was that when it, when it came to physical intimacy, it's not that God said, thou shalt not. God said, thou shalt, and thou shalt enjoy it when thou shalt. And he said that 40 times in that sermon. My mother was eight and a half months pregnant with me on the front row. And she has never been more embarrassed in her life in church. Thou shalt, and thou shalt enjoy it when thou shalt. I don't, how do you think that, that that's a mem- it is memorable. I guess I will say that. Okay. It is pleasurable, but, but our world wants to turn it into just that. Okay, and that's, that's not the whole truth. Uh, it's, physical intimacy is intended to be procreative. But it's not only about creating life. Right? If you've never read carefully through uh, the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon, there's not a whole lot of focusing on procreation in that book. It's romance. It's, it's two people, a man and a woman, connecting in a physically intimate way. And it is about that connection. And it is amazing to me. That a man and a woman could be physically intimate and life would be created. That is amazing. But that moment is not only about that. And if we reduce it to that, if, in other words, as Christian people, we pretend like there isn't pleasure involved, there isn't a romantic connection involved, I think we're not telling the whole truth, and then we're not fully understanding it together in the way that God wants us to. A physical intimacy It's intended to be the closest you can possibly get to another human being. And when I say closest, I mean physically and spiritually in every way, emotionally every way. That's what it's intended to do. Now, it doesn't have to do that, but that's what God wants to have happen. And because of that, physical intimacy is intended to only take place within the safety of an unconditional covenant. A covenant that we call marriage. And we, we've been talking about the, the amazing amount of, of connection and, and kind of an echo that goes between the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is really exploring. Okay, what does this actually look like all these years later? And wouldn't, wouldn't you know he talks about this commandment in Matthew chapter 5. And he extends it and says, look, it's not just about what you do with your body. Don't separate your body from your soul. If you look on somebody 
and you're longing for physical intimacy with them, and you're not married to them, you are sinning, right? You, you are stumbling. You are having a struggle in your life that you need to recognize. Now, I think Jesus says that for a lot of different reasons, but at least one reason Jesus wants to connect our eyes and our feelings with our bodies in, in that moment is there's a safety and an unconditional covenant that has to accompany physical intimacy. You should not be that vulnerable, right? You should not open yourself up the way you open yourself up in physical intimacy. You shouldn't do that if there's a chance that that person would leave you. That they could walk away from you. Especially if it's because you didn't perform well enough. Right? And, and I feel like we have all kinds of people in our world who have complicated their sexual lives enough to the point where they, they are constantly going to be fearful of comparison. They are constantly going to be fearful of other people and what other people are able to do or are thinking or are saying. And, and so there's this, there's this conviction God has that if you're going to be that open, that vulnerable to another human being, you should be able to trust in that relationship no matter what. Okay? And I think this is something we, we don't talk enough about uh, in the world. And, and I'm pretty sure we don't talk about it enough in here because it's just awkward to talk about it. Right? It's uncomfortable to talk about it. Um, and, and I believe wholeheartedly that there is deep wisdom in God's saying, physical intimacy is an incredible gift, but there is a time and a place for it. And if we ignore that, if we think we know better, if, if we think we're able to physically connect, and not just physically connect, but through that act to spiritually and emotionally connect with multiple people, and think that we're not going to be, our souls aren't going to be impacted by that. Our souls aren't going to be diminished by that. We don't understand what it really means to be a child of God who trusts God's wisdom and trusts in God's way. God tells us that we need to, we need to understand this enough to avoid adultery at all costs. Okay, and, and I think we at least, in light of what we've learned so far, we need to define adultery so we're all on the same page. We commit adultery when we fantasize about having or we actually pursue having the kind of physically intimate relationships with someone who's not our spouse that we should only have with our spouse. Okay, Jesus in Matthew 5 helps us understand it's not just about the physical act, it includes the imagination. We have terms for this in our world, right? We have terms like an emotional affair. Right? And we, we want to place that in an entirely different category. But the reason that we come up with terms like that is, is there's damage that's done when somebody else is looking around. When someone in a marriage is searching to connect with somebody else in a way that they should only connect 
with their husband or wife on that same kind of level. It's not fair. And it breaks the marriage covenant that we've made. It breaks the promise that we've made to another person. You know, the best thing, the, the, the thing about Genesis chapter 4 that I think we can sometimes miss is, you know, it, there's only two people. It's Adam and Eve. There's nobody else in the world. And I think at some basic level in a marriage, that's how it should be for us, that there's nobody else. I mean, I know there's a ton of other people, but, but we should make the decision to say, for all intents and purposes, for me, it's just me and Lauren. That's it. Can we be people who make the decision to shield our hearts? Jesus gets more practical than that, to shield our eyes from giving into this temptation to think that maybe we're not finding some sort of connection with our current spouse in a way that's exciting enough or, or engaging enough. And so we're going to start shopping around. And we think we can do that in the privacy of our own hearts before we tell anybody else. And that's not going to have an impact. But Jesus says we're lying to ourselves when we do that. And we are making our marriage something that's going to be very, very difficult for us to maintain in any sort of healthy way. When we get married... It's just you and me, and that's it. The world's going to constantly tell us, no, 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 no. You, you can, you know, you can window shop. It's okay. It's not okay. Our world is constantly bombarding us. I mean, look, look at what's on the internet. Do you know the kind of website that is the single most popular kind of website in the entire internet, if you just count them? You know, you don't need me to tell you. Look at the kind of television most of us are watching. We're not talking about it. Nobody else may know about it. But are we, are we strengthening our commitment to our beloved? Or are we trying to get something through our eyes, through, through some sort of media we're consuming that we're not receiving from our physical intimacy with our our husband or our wife. And if that's happening, why are we letting it happen? We've got to be people who protect the covenant of marriage no matter what. Now, I know, and I, I feel like I always have to say this, there are abusive situations. There are, there are situations where somebody cannot control themselves, uh, th their physical intimacy, and, and they continue to be unfaithful. There are extreme situations where I understand Divorce is going to be the resort that we reach. But we better always see it as a last resort and not a right. Okay, not something we're, we're trying to figure out how there's a technical uh, amount of permission for us to, to explain this away. That better not be how anybody who's trying to be a person of God thinks about marriage and the marriage covenant. Okay, one of the things I want to say real quickly... Is Carly Dodden here? No? He's seen as, he has a good excuse, so <laughs> tell him he has a good excuse. He would have been nervous right now anyway. This is not rhetorically sophisticated. I was going to apologize to him in advance. He's a communications professor. This is ugly, but here we go. Off to the side. Don't tell him I did this. Tell him it was a better sermon than it was. Okay, so <laughs> off to the side. For those of you in the room 
who are not married uh, right now, and, and whether you intend to get married in the future or not, I want to say something about uh, the gift of physical intimacy. Okay, the first thing I want to say is that within marriage, the act of physical intimacy has the power to make life better. Outside of marriage, the act of physical intimacy has the power to make life much, much worse. But it is, it, it never has the power to make life worth living. I want to be clear about that because this is kind of how the world talks about physical intimacy. And I'm afraid too often the church kind of just acquiesces to that same value. Last time I checked, Jesus Christ was the best possible version of what it means to be a human being fully alive. He doesn't have physical intimacy as a part of his life. We don't know if Paul might have been married before we get to the place where he's writing all the letters in the New Testament. It definitely seems like he's not married at that point. Paul, again, is one of the best examples we have of a person in the kingdom serving God, a life full of meaning and purpose. And as far as we know, physical intimacy is not a regular part of his life. I think we just need to get that on the table. It it can make things better. It it can't it can't I will say this, it can't fix major problems in any relationship. But man, it can wreck them. It really can. It can wreck things. Um, but I just want to say to those of you who who may feel like this sermon's not for you, um, there's something in this message for you, and that is God gives us the gift of physical intimacy, but it is far from the only gift that God gives us when it comes to community, when it comes to connecting with one another. And there are soul-deep connections that can uh, need to happen, and they do happen, between people that don't involve any kind of real physical intimacy at all. There's a spiritual intimacy that's there. Um, and it's real, and it's life-changing. Um, and I want to say that. Okay, back to... Back to the rest of the sermon here. I think as we continue to, to consider the, the role that covenant marriage should play in the lives of those of us who are married, uh, we need to remember that we don't only live as married people. We, we also live as people who have committed to being full participants in the community of Christ. So I want to make this clear, because I think this is another difficulty that sometimes we struggle with, and that is that Honoring your marriage covenant means that your spouse should know you better than any other person in your life. Are we clear on that? Your spouse should know you better than anybody else. But it doesn't mean that your spouse should be the only person in your life who knows the real you. I find sometimes that in a, in a highly sexualized world, we are so nervous of improper relational connections that we sometimes develop what sound like really theologically profound excuses to never really connect with anybody else other than perhaps our spouse. Right? We don't open up. We're not vulnerable. We don't share things with other people that we really should be sharing. And so, for the most part, we're on our own. 
And I think if we, if we drill down deep enough and think about it, there are many people who happen to be married who haven't really fully shared with their spouse. And so it's not just that they might only have one person who knows the real them. They may have nobody who knows who they really are and what they're really struggling with. And we may call that kind of life by all kinds of different different terms, right? Loneliness, um, self-reliant, private, you keep it to yourself, whatever it is. But it's not the kind of life God created you to get to enjoy. It's not the kind of blessing that God wants you to experience. There should be other people, and I want to be as clear as possible about this. There should be other people, men and women in this church, who know you through and through. They should know right now that you should be able to see faces and names of people in this community of faith who are walking beside you in whatever it is you're going through. And that definitely includes your marriage. I want to read just a few passages that underline this idea of how much we are connected soul to soul within the community of Christ. If you open up to Romans chapter 13, we'll start in verse 8. Paul says, don't be in debt to anyone except for the obligation to love each other. Whoever loves another person has fulfilled the law. He's talking about the Ten Commandments here, right? Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't desire what others have. And any other commandments, they're all summed up in one word. You must love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, you can't love your neighbor as yourself unless you know them. He says love doesn't do anything wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is what fulfills the law. In 1 Corinthians, it's still Paul, uh, chapter 12, starting in verse 12. Christ is just like the human body. A body is a unit and has many parts, and all the parts of the body are one body, even though there are many. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek or slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Certainly the body isn't one part but many. We're skipping to verse 25 here. So that there won't be any division in the body, and so the parts might have mutual concern for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. If one part gets glory, all the parts celebrate with it. You are the body of Christ, and you're parts of each other. And then in Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 1, Paul continues and says, Brothers and sisters, if a person's caught doing something wrong, you who are spiritual should restore someone like this with a spirit of what? Of gentleness. Watch out for yourselves so you won't be tempted to. Right? We're all at risk. We're all vulnerable, Paul says. Carry each other's burdens and in this way, right, so that you will fulfill the law of Christ. Taken together, these scriptures, I think, tell us some really important truths that we not only need to remember, but we need to believe that they're true. Right? We are one body. Your life directly affects my life. Your personal, your private, your secret decisions create situations that we're going to have to face together. Everything we do shapes us as individuals. Every choice we make builds our character. Every action we take makes us who we are. 
And who we are either helps or hurts the other people we live in community with. I don't want to hear about ending a sentence with a preposition. Just, just deal with it, okay? In whom we're with community, whatever. These are truths that are repeated over and over and over in Scripture. Right now, Paul really likes to explore this idea of we're one body, but he gets that from the Old Testament. He gets that from the context of the Ten Commandments that says you are individuals, but you belong in a community together. And this is how you're going to live in that community. And then for the rest of the Old Testament, God deals with Israel as if they're one people. And when they're not faithful to the calling, do you know how God describes his relationship with them? He says that they're committing adultery. He says that they aren't being faithful to him and to the relationship that they have because the best image, and Paul comes back to this in Ephesians chapter 5, marriage, that connection, that physical, spiritual, emotional connection, that is the best image that we can have in this life of how God loves the church, how God loves us. Just like Israel, we are one body. We we share life. And that's not just something you say. That's something you, you actually have to carry out. Every time I go to a, a wedding, every time I perform a wedding, you know, you just have this sense that this is, this is life at its, its brightest and its best. It's full of potential. It's full of love. It's, it's, it's a community that gathers together around a couple that's trying to build a brand new kind of life together. I mean, it's, it's beautiful enough. It's, it's worth everybody getting dressed up, right, and coming together and maybe having to travel a long way just, just to celebrate that moment together. American author Wendell Berry talks about that moment here in this quote. And I know there's a lot of words here, but I, I think he explains it so well. He says, if they had only themselves to consider, lovers would not need to marry. I think he's thinking of Genesis 4 there, right? There's just Adam and Eve. There's nobody else. But they must think of others and of other things. They say their vows to the community as much as to one another. And the community gathers around them to hear and to wish them well on their behalf and on its own. The community, it gathers around them because it understands how necessary, how joyful, and how fearful this joining is. These lovers, pledging themselves to one another until death, are giving themselves away. And they are joined by this as no law or contract would ever join them. And so here, at the very heart of community life, we find this momentous self-giving. And if the community cannot protect this giving... It can protect nothing. Okay, now what he's saying with a lot of words there is, it's not just the couple's future that's at stake when they make those promises to each other. It's all of our future. Right? We're there because we want to believe that true love is strong enough for people to make lifelong promises to one another and for those promises to come true. Every time a marriage fails, it scares me for my marriage. Right? Every time. Every time two people, for whatever reason, come to the place where they give up on one another, I get scared. Because I know me. 
And I know I'm not perfect. And I know I have good days and bad days. And I know that a lot of those couples, they tried for a long time to fight for their marriage. But then they reached a place where at least one of them wasn't willing to fight anymore. Doesn't that impact you? Because we're one body? And when someone else makes a promise and they can't keep it, doesn't it make you wonder, are you going to be able to keep all of your promises? If we can't protect the sanctity of covenant relationship and marriage, if we won't retool the entire community, I mean change everything we have to change to make sure we're doing everything in the power that God gives us to help people hold on to one another in a world that wants to tear us apart. If we're not willing to do that, then we need to stop calling ourselves God's people. You shall not commit adultery, God says. You're going to honor the covenant of marriage. Two people aren't enough to honor the covenant of marriage. The community has to help those two people, has to give those two people the strength that maybe they don't have in themselves to honor the covenant of marriage. Okay, I've got a a next quote that's going to make you even less comfortable. Lauren Winter, who writes a really good book on on being a person uh, who's not married yet and has made the decision uh, because as a Christian person, uh, because of their commitments to be celibate. And she writes about all the different challenges that, that young people face. And here's what she writes. She says, look, I know that when we start to talk to one another about our, our moments of physical intimacy, it feels like intrusion. The Bible tells us to intrude. Or rather, the Bible tells us that talking to one another about what's really going on in our lives is in fact not an intrusion at all. Because what's going on in my life is already your concern. We are called to transform seemingly private matters into communal matters. Christians need to speak courageously and transparently about the seemingly private matters of Christian marriage. Listen to this. There would be, I suspect, a lot fewer divorces in the church if married Christians exposed their domestic lives. Their their fights and their tensions and their squabbles to loving wisdom, advice, and sometimes rebuke from their community. Christians might claim less credit card debt if small group members shared their bank account statements with one another. I suspect that if my best friend had permission to scrutinize my daytimer, I would inhabit time better. Speaking to one another about our sexual selves is just one, admittedly risky, instance of a larger piece of Christian discipleship being true real community to one another. We don't talk about our marriages. We talk about marriage. And we need to talk about marriage. And we'll keep talking about marriage. But brothers and sisters, we do not talk about our individual marriages enough. We don't. And I'm just going to say something that breaks my heart. And that is... We keep secrets about our marriages in church. And we typically only start to share that our marriage is in deep trouble when it's just about too late for anybody outside of our marriage to help us. Now, I don't know all the reasons that happens. I'm sure part of it is shame. 
I'm sure part of it is we were embarrassed by what's going on. I'm going to say right now, I know some marriages by name in this room that are struggling right now. And I know there's a bunch of marriages in this room that I don't have an idea about. I'm not talking about any marriage in particular. I'm talking about all of them. Don't take this personally. I'm fed up as a preacher of being a part of a church leadership where by the time we find out that a marriage is in trouble, it's too late. Tell somebody. Tell somebody that you trust and you love and you care about. And that you you believe cares deeply about you. Nobody knows what's going on in your marriage if you don't tell somebody. And it doesn't have to be me. And it doesn't have to be an elder. But tell somebody. I know that if I had to tell somebody, it would be our elders and their wives. But if, if you don't know anybody close enough, just find somebody and tell them. Tell them while there's still time. Tell them when you still have, have this, this little place in your heart, maybe, that still believes there's hope. Don't tell us when you've already given up and you've already developed all the excuses that you're going to give us. None of which are original, by the way. I've heard them all before and I don't want to ever hear them again. I'm just frustrated with it, brothers and sisters. I'm tired of it. Why would we join churches to keep secrets from one another? Why would we do that? I mean, are we just going to waste our time and, and, and pretend that we're something we're not? If you're in trouble in your life, being a Christian means you share that with somebody. And you don't only share it with the other person you're struggling the most with. You share it with somebody who can help you. There is hope. There is grace. I'm going to tell you right now. There isn't a perfect marriage in this building. There isn't. There's real marriages in this building. And I promise you, whatever you're dealing with, there's a marriage in this building that has faced the same struggle you're facing now. And God carried them through. Tell somebody, we are one body. We are not a collection of individuals. And we don't just happen to belong here. We belong to one another. And it is time for us to start acting like it. And I don't know how to say this any more nor directly than this. Your marriage is my business. My marriage is your business. Do you know the impact that would happen to this church if Lauren and I got up one day and decided we didn't want to stay married anymore? I'm pretty sure it wouldn't only impact our daughters. You're no different. You're in community. We need to start acting like we're actually in community. It's time, brothers and sisters, it's time. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, a few of our shepherds and their wives will really be through those double doors. We want to be there for each other. We want to pray with each other. If you came this morning with any concerns at all that you'd like to share with them, please go to them as together we stand and sing. I stand to praise you, but I fall to my knees. My spirit is willing, but my 
my flesh is so weak. 